Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I apologize for the state of my voice this morning. I have come down with something rather quickly. Um, So many thanks to Myra, who has violently tended me as a nursemaid, um, and to Rebecca McLean for stepping in as celebrant, and to Ray Dugan for being able to step in for our noon Spanish service today. Well, this week has been full of surprises. As many of you might have seen on Facebook or Twitter, uh, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry, was here in Phoenix on Thursday for a private event, and he stopped by the cathedral. A presiding bishop is the head of the Episcopal Church in the United States and surrounding territories, and Michael Curry was elected last summer as our new presiding bishop. And when I came in, I was returning from clergy conference in Prescott, and Gary told me that the presiding bishop was coming over. I assumed he was lying. Um, And... He was not. And so Bishop Smith brought over Bishop Curry, and it was my first time meeting him in person, and he is just a delightful and nice and very genuine man. Um, We all took selfies with him and pictures here in the cathedral, so we did our duty as Episcopalians. Um, One of the things that I really admire about Bishop Curry is that he's making it a point to do something different in terms of social media as presiding bishop. The presiding bishop has the opportunity at certain times and in certain seasons to address the wider church. And what Bishop Curry has done is not only issued press releases or made statements, but he's actually created videos where he's reading his letters to the church. Um, So it becomes like a conversation between you and the presiding bishop. And in his Easter message this year, uh, Bishop Curry talks about the deep need for us as Christians to claim and celebrate the reality of both the crucifixion and the resurrection. He says repeatedly that it's not a fairy tale. It's not a story of morals or hope. It's a testament to us that Jesus has showed us the way of love, love of God and love of other in the midst of a world that is constantly telling us that might is right and power is everything. Bishop Curry says, when I start feeling that way, I have to ask myself a question. It's not my question, it's Dr. Phil's question. How's that working out for you? How's that working out for the world? Bishop Curry continues by saying that Jesus showed us what love looks like, and that's what we call the way of the cross, and the way of life and hope. The question, how's that working out for you, is an easy paraphrase of what Jesus says to the disciples on the beach this morning. The disciples in the Gospel of John at this point have already seen Jesus. They've spoken with him. They've touched the wounds in his sides and hands. And yet from far off, from a boat to shore, they still can't recognize his voice. And the main interaction that we see today is focused on Peter and Jesus. And as a disciple, I think we can all agree that Peter, for all of his zeal, has a bit of an identity problem. And we love him for it. I think we can all identify with Peter wanting and trying ardently to love Jesus, to follow his way, and messing up pretty badly sometimes. 
And so today, in the midst of what must have been an utterly exhausting time, following Jesus to Calvary, watching him die, burying him, experiencing the joy of the resurrection and seeing him thereafter, being utterly exhausted, Peter decides to get back to his basics, to the familiar. I'm going fishing, he says. And so he and some of the disciples return to what they know. In the usual way, they're throwing the net over the left side of the boat, which made it easier to pull in with right dominant hands, and they've stripped down to the bare necessities. And like every fishing trip I've ever taken, this trip was a total bust. Until a man from the shore encourages them to do what they're doing just a little bit differently, he oh-so-gently pushes them out of their comfort zone to cast the net on the other side. It'll be harder to pull in. It's awkward and yet familiar. But the haul is great. And John looks over at Peter and says, It's the Lord. And Peter, in his Peterness, rushes to put on his clothes before he leaves the boat, jumps in the lake, and then swims to the shore. Soaking wet, excited, and waiting. Peter hears that Jesus wishes to break bread with them. And then Peter runs back to the ship to help unload the catch. But the disciples are still fishermen. Before they go to greet their Lord, they have to count every single one of the fish that they've caught that day. 153. The exact same number of known countries that existed at the time. And what happens next when they sit down to a meal is often called the reinstating of Peter. Remember, the last time we saw Peter around a fire, he was scared and alone in the temple courtyard, and three times he denied Jesus. You're not one of his disciples, are you? I am not. And here, on this beach... Jesus is asking Peter the very same question. Are you my disciple? Do you know who you are? How will you know that you're mine? How will the world know that you're mine? And so Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? And when Jesus says love, he's talking about agape love. A love that is unconditional, which would one theologian delightfully calls stickability. Love that's not going anywhere. And Peter responds to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter responds with affection, with filio, a deep affection for someone you're in a relationship with. Someone who's similar to you, someone who shares your belief, someone with whom you have a connection of the soul. But it's not agape. And so Jesus asks Peter twice if he agapes him. And Peter twice responds with filio. But the third time, the third time, once again, Jesus meets Peter exactly where he is. Peter, do you filio me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. And the answer that Jesus gives to Peter, no matter how Peter understands what the love of Jesus is, or what the love of Jesus is like, is always the same. Feed my sheep. 
so often our construct of identity is based on what we are not. By creating an understanding of difference, by constructing the other apart from who we are, we begin to see and project who we are by who we aren't. And this is a natural thing. But Jesus tells us today that it is unnatural as his disciples to choose anything other than love, than a love that nurtures us and the world by feeding the heart and the mind and the body and the soul. Our identity rooted in Jesus speaks to us of unconditional love, love that's not going anywhere at all, of belovedness. That's where we all start, and that's where we all end. And if we were to feed Jesus' sheep, if we were to respond with filio and agape love to the world, how different would the answer to how's that working out for you look? Well, I have an idea. This weekend, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Anglican Communion, Justin Welby, released a private statement about an identity problem. A paper had done some digging around and had made accusations that Justin Welby's father, the man who raised him and gave him his name, was not his biological father. And so in an attempt to discredit the story, Archbishop Welby took a DNA test. And what came out as a result of the DNA test was a 99.979% proof that he was somebody else's child. His mother and father had been in the depths of alcoholism, and before her marriage to the man that raised Archbishop Welby, she had a liaison with another man that resulted in her wonderful son. So the Archbishop of Canterbury released a personal statement. And part of it is this. This revelation has, of course, been a surprise. But in my life and in our marriage, Caroline and I have had far worse. I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics. And my identity in him never changes Even more importantly, my role as Archbishop makes me constantly aware of the real and genuine pain and suffering of many around the world, which should be the main focus of our prayers. Although there are elements of sadness and even tragedy in my father's case, this is a story of redemption and hope from a place of tumultuous difficulty a near despair in several lives. It is a testimony to the grace and power of Christ to liberate and redeem us, grace and power which is offered to every human being. He concludes, At the very outset of my inauguration service three years ago, Evangeline Kangasorium, a young member of the Canterbury Cathedral Congregation, said, We greet you in the name of Christ. Who are you? And who do you, why do you request entry? To which I responded, I am Justin, a servant of Jesus Christ. And I come as one seeking the grace of God 
to travel with you in his service together. What has changed? Nothing. An editorial accompanying the story and the archbishop's personal statement ends with the line, this story is better than a thousand sermons. Easter is a season of resurrection, of hope, of redemption, of life, and ultimately of love. In a world that often seems to be darkening by the minute, including our skies outside this morning, you and I have a choice. Will we agree to the concept that might makes right, that pain and suffering are not only to be endured, but created and sustained by us? How's that been working out for you? Or will we take a moment to hear the voice of Jesus asking us, are you tired and hungry and what you're doing isn't working? Cast your net on the other side. Shift a little bit to do things in my way the way of love. And above all else, love me and love the other. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Follow me. Glory be to God whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen.